Okay. So if you've been with us for the last couple of weeks, you'll know that we are about getting close to 25% of the way through our series in Genesis. We're going to be taking the next three months and continuing our journey in Genesis. Last week, John spoke about the fall and what was really happening at the fall and how that is still the way in which the enemy works. Today and tonight, we're going to speak about one of the most well-known stories in the Bible. We're going to talk about Noah and his ark, right? Except that we're not actually really going to spend a lot of time talking about Noah and his ark. Look, we could easily do that. There's a lot we could learn from Noah. We could talk about how Noah was faithful to God in the face and in the time where sin was so rampant in the land around him. We could talk about the obedience that Noah expressed towards God when God told him to build an ark that didn't make any logical or rational sense. We could talk about his wisdom when he was confronted with challenges in terms of how he was going to feed the animals and get everyone off the ark. We could talk about the scientific validity of the flood if you wanted to. We could discuss the archaeological and the theological evidence for whether the flood was a local flood or a global flood. We could ask questions about the reasonableness of a pair of all the different animals on the earth surviving on one boat for a year and how that was possible. We could argue the apologetics for the factual nature of the ark and the flood. But we're not going to do all of those things. Many people have done those things. You can read about them. You can find them online. But instead, I want to direct our attention this evening towards God and the picture of God that we find when we look at the story of the flood. Because I think in this, the most well-known, perhaps, of all the Bible stories, we see a picture of the fullness of the character of God. We see this balanced representation of His character and His nature, where the full expression of His wrath and the extension of His grace are interwoven together in a story that foreshadows the life that we get to live now under a new covenant. It's a story that I hope you will view with a new appreciation after we've looked at it together. I hope it inspires in you a, a love and an appreciation for the God that we serve. I hope it, it grows in you awe at His greatness and His righteousness. Well, the story takes place from Genesis chapter 6 to halfway through Genesis chapter 9. So we're not going to read all of it together because otherwise we'd be here quite a long time. I'd love to encourage you to go and do that though after we finish here tonight. Go and read the story for yourself. All right, we're going to pick up some of the significant moments along the way. And we're going to do that really under four different spaces. And the first place we're going to turn to, the first place we're going to look at is the, the prelude, the prequel to the story, the, the prologue for the story, the reason the story exists. And the reason the story of the flood exists is because of the sinfulness of humanity. If you go to Genesis chapter 6, you can have a look and we're going to read together. It's going to be on the screen for us. Genesis chapter 6 and verse 5, it says this. It says, The Lord observed the extent of human wickedness on the earth, and He saw that everything that they thought or imagined was consistently and totally evil. And so the Lord was sorry that He had ever made them and He put them on the earth. In fact, it broke His heart. He said, I'm sorry that I ever made them. Go on. In, chapter, in verse 11, he says, Now the earth was corrupt in God's sight, and the earth was filled with violence. And God saw the earth, and behold, it was corrupt. For all flesh had corrupted their way on the earth. 
I wonder if you notice something as you read these verses. I wonder if you notice the, the phrases that the author uses, especially here in verse 5 and 12. The Lord observed, the Lord saw, and, and God saw and behold. Does that remind you of something? Does it remind you of anything that you've maybe read before in Genesis? All right, I see one or two of you nodding. All right, you remember the creation accounts. Genesis chapter 1. God begins to create, and after each day, He creates something, and He speaks it out, and His thoughts become words, and His words become reality. And He looks down and says, and God saw that it was good. And He does this for five days, and on the sixth day, He creates man and woman. And He makes them in His own image and likeness, and He forms them, man out of the, the dust of the ground, and woman out of the flesh and the bone of man. And then he looks down, he looks at everything that he has made, and he proclaimed that it was very good. Now, just a few chapters later, God looks down, and it's no longer good. It's definitely not very good. In fact, the opposite seems to have happened. All flesh has been corrupted. There's this description that we find in the NLT. It says, the collective thoughts and deeds of humanity are described as consistently and totally evil. It's so bad. The state of humanity is so bad that it's, God says that his heart was broken, that he looked down and he grieved and he regretted and he repented of having made humanity in the first place because his creative intent had been so corrupted. Friends, these verses are designed to show us a reversal of the creation week. If you read in Genesis chapter 7, the first part of Genesis chapter 7, God says to Noah, Noah, go into the ark, for in seven days I will send a flood. Just as in the beginning God created everything within seven days, now we get to Genesis chapter 6 and 7, and in seven days God is going to destroy everything that He's created. Just think of that for a moment, that the sinful actions of men and women have effectively reversed the creative design of the Almighty God. I find that quite a terrifying thought, quite a, a heart-rending thought, and it makes, me, it makes me ask this question. It forces me to ask this question. If God did that then, what happens when God looks down at humanity now? What does God see when He looks down now? Are we worse now than we were back then? I honestly don't know. I genuinely don't. I have no way of evaluating that. But in Genesis chapter 19, we have the story of Lot, and he is in this town, and some people come to visit him. And as they come into his house, after they've been there for an hour or two, the whole town gathers outside his door and says, Hey, Lot, don't you want to release those guys to us so that we can molest them? I mean, that's a terrible, terrible thing. You just need to think about some of the news articles you've read to see some of the things that happen in our world today. Today, we will willingly alter a person's sexuality, removing the organs that God created and replacing them with one that we've created ourselves. We'll experiment with DNA and genome editing. We'll endorse and fight for the rights of what God has declared to be ungodly. 
about 2,000 years ago, Paul wrote to the Roman church. And he, and he writes and he tells them how everyone has fallen short of the standard that God has created. And he begins to use a series of adjectives that describe his generation. And then none of them are very good. But the one that sticks with me is in verse 30 of Romans chapter 1. He says, they are, are inventors of evil. They are men and women who find new ways of committing evil. And as I, as I read that and reflect on our world, and as I look at the news and I watch the stuff that's going on, I can't help but feel like that description is really still apt for our generation today. And it makes me wonder, guys, it makes me wonder how much grief is carried in the heart of God. How much grief is carried there? You might remember the words the writer to the Hebrews used in chapter 10 when he wrote to them and he warned them about the, the dangers of sin. And he said, but I am confident of better things in your case. And I carry that confidence in me as well because just as back then as God was writing about the nature of humanity, as he's reflecting on the nature of humanity, Noah is a righteous man. And as God looks down at the earth today, my hope is that as he looks at his church as he looks at this church, that he sees people who love him and who are living their lives for him and are doing their best to follow him and to honor him and to bring him glory in the things that we do. Because we've been made righteous by the blood of Christ. Our sins have been atoned for in what Jesus has done. The Spirit of the living God has come to live in us and he is changing us and shaping us and we are working out our salvation with fear and trembling before our King. But the story of the flood should cause us to reevaluate how we think about and how we respond to sin. Because in, in this story, right at the beginning of the Bible, right at the beginning of the, the massive story about God and His people, that is the whole journey of the Bible, we have an insight into the heart of God that I think is quite unique in Scripture. We see God as the loving Father who has to watch His wayward child spiral deeper and deeper and deeper into darkness until He doesn't recognize that child anymore. And until that child effectively gets cut off from the family. And it makes me reflect and think about when I get tempted to sin. Or when someone comes to me and shares with me something that they've done or something that they want my opinion on. I, and I feel like whatever is being shared... Can, leads is actually not right, is actually not good. It makes me reevaluate how serious sin is before God. It reminds me of the effect that sin has on my father. But when God looks down and he sees the sinfulness of man, it causes him to, to respond. And the story of the flood is the story of God's response to the sinfulness of humanity. And I think there are three distinct responses that we see from God as he responds to, to the sinfulness that our ancestors had carried. And I want to look at those together now. And the first is perhaps the most poignant, but it's not always the most appreciated. But the first response that we see in the flood is the justice of God. The flood of Genesis most patently represents the sovereign justice of God in action. There are few stories in Scripture that so exemplify this characteristic of God like the story of the flood. And I think the reason for that is because after God does this, He makes a decision. He makes a covenant. He sovereignly chooses to never again act in this way 
to never again manifest His judgment in this way. And so the story of the flood becomes unique in the story of Scripture that shows us the outworking of God's justice in history. It establishes for us in, in perhaps the most emphatic terms that God really is the judge of all the earth, that the wages of sin really are death, that God is the ultimate judge to whom all people will be held to account. See, when God looked down and saw the sinfulness of man, it grieved him in his heart, but it also prompted him to respond in righteousness. And throughout Genesis 6 and 7, God makes this commitment several times. And I want to just pull out a few of those passages for us to look at tonight. Genesis chapter 6 and verse 7 says, So the Lord said, I will blot out man whom I have created from the face of the land, man and animals, creeping things and birds of the heavens, for I am sorry that I have made them. God said to Noah, I have determined to make an end of all flesh, for the earth is filled with violence through them. Behold, I will destroy them with the earth. Verse 17, look, I am about to cover the earth with a flood that will destroy every living thing that breathes. Everything on the earth will die. These are some of the strongest words I think you will find in Scripture. God covenants, He promises, He says, man and animals, bugs and birds, all flesh, even the very earth itself, every living thing that breathes, everything that is on the earth is going to die. Notice that it's, it's our sin that God is judging. It's the sin of humanity that, that God is making a judgment on, but the consequences of that judgment don't just land on man. They don't just land on men and women, but they, they follow through. Animals are going to die. The earth is being punished as a result of what we have done. And I, the reason I believe God is doing that is because way back in Genesis 2, He gave man dominion over the earth and over the animals. And He told him to rule it and to subdue it and to govern it and to care for it. That was the commission that our ancestors had. It was a commission that they neglected. And so when God brings His judgment, He brings it across all of the earth. See, the consequence of human sin is the total destruction of everything that God made. It's the destruction of everything that breathes, everything that had the breath of life breathed into it by God Himself. That's the wages of sin. And as you think about that, as you think about the incredibly terrible nature of this flood, the catastrophic damage that was dealt to the entire world. I want to suggest to you that even that scale of destruction represents restraint on God's part. I want to, I want to share with you that the New Testament tells us that there will be a day where the judgment that is coming is going to be even more severe than the judgment that the earth has already experienced. Jesus himself begins to talk about it in Luke chapter 17. You can put it up for us, Charlene. It says, The days are coming when you will desire to see one of the days of the Son of Man. For as lightning flashes and lights up the sky from one side to the other, so the Son of Man will be in his day. 
And just as it was in the days of Noah, so it will be in the days of the Son of Man. For people will be eating and drinking and marrying and being given in marriage until the day when Noah entered the ark. And the flood came and destroyed them all. Likewise, just as it was in the days of Lot, Jesus said, they will be eating and drinking, buying and selling, planting and building, going about life as normal. But on the day that Lot went out from Sodom, fire and sulfur rained from heaven and destroyed them all. So it will be on the day when the Son of Man is revealed. Peter picks up this idea in his second letter to the church, in 2 Peter chapter 3, and he says, from verse 3, he says, Friends, most importantly, most importantly, I want to remind you that in the last days there will come people who will scoff and who will mock the truth, and they follow their own desires, and they will come to you, and they will say, What happened to the promise that Jesus is coming again? You might have friends that are saying to you, Where is Jesus who's supposed to be coming again? They will say, from before the times of our ancestors, everything has remained the same since the earth was first created. Peter says, they deliberately forget that God made the heavens long ago by the word of his command. And he brought the earth out of the water and surrounded it with water. And then he used water to destroy the ancient world with a mighty flood. And by the same word, the same word, the present heavens and the earth are being stored up for fire. They are being kept for the day of judgment when the ungodly will be destroyed. It says, the day of the Lord will come as unexpectedly as a thief. Then the heavens will pass away with a terrible noise and the very elements themselves will disappear in fire. And the earth and everything on it will be found to deserve judgments. That's the judgment of God, the justice of God that is waiting to be outworked. The very elements of the earth itself, the periodic table that we all got to study in science, are going to be destroyed in the fire of God's justice and judgments. Peter goes on to tell us, he carries on, he says, the reason it hasn't happened yet is because God is gracious. The reason it hasn't happened yet is because God is merciful, and he wants as many people as possible to be saved. And so he is waiting, and he is holding off that day, because his desire is that all would come to repentance. But friends, do not be deceived. God is not to be mocked. And we will all reap what we sow. Judgment and justice are just being held over. They haven't been abandoned. There will be a day of reckoning when the king will come and he will judge the earth again. This is something I find as I think about it and as I read it, I find it both comforting and daunting. I find it comforting because if I'm honest, as I look around our world and as I see the stuff that is going on and I read the news reports and I listen to the stories of people and I hear about the horrendous things that are happening and the way in which people are being violated and abused and damaged. It breaks my heart, and I find it comforting to know that one day God will hold every person to account. One day every sin will be paid for, and people that think they've gotten away with it will be made to pay. But I find it daunting because I know that I will stand before that same judge and every sin that I have committed in the darkness will be shouted out loud in the light. And every act of my life will be laid bare before the judge of all the earth. And I will be found so horribly wanting, 
of the righteousness that Jesus called me to. And then I will look and Jesus will be next to me. And he will say, Father, this one I've atoned for. This one is mine. And it reminds me of the words of the Apostle Paul in Romans chapter 7 as he speaks about his, his ongoing battle. He, he knows what is right and he constantly finds himself doing what is wrong. And he says, who will save me from this body of death? Thanks be to Jesus Christ, my Lord. And that's all I can say as I look at the incredible justice and judgment of God. I know how far short I'm going to fall on that day. And I say, thank you, Jesus that you are going to stand there next to me and you have paid the price for my sin. As I read the story of the flood, I see the full display of the justice of God worked out in human history. And I can't help, I can't help friends, but think of this question. I can't help reflect on this and wonder if God's forbearance if the fact that he hasn't yet brought forth his judgment has caused me to downplay the seriousness of sin and the way in which I treat sin in my life. Have you ever been tempted to think it's not that bad? It's not really going to matter? Sure, God probably won't mind. I wonder if every hundred years there'd been a flood that had wiped out all sinful people if we would still think about sin in the same way. I want to invite us just for a moment to invite the Holy Spirit into your heart, to, to speak to Him and say, Holy Spirit, won't you come and just search me? Won't you come and search me, Lord, and show me, God, if I have had a flippant or a soft or a light attitude towards that which displeases you. And Lord, God, lead me into repentance and, and call me towards righteousness. So we're just going to pause. We're going to pause for just for a minute. I'd love you to be silent. And just ask God to come and to search you. And if you feel Him speaking, there's going to be a space where we're going to respond together at the end. Holy Spirit, come and search us. Show us, God, if there is any unrighteous way within us. Show us, Lord, if we've treated your grace and your forbearance lightly. See, the beautiful thing is that when God shows us his, our sin, that the immediate consequence of that is not yet judgment. But there is a grace that God carries towards us. There is a grace that he carries even towards this earth, towards those who don't even yet know him. And that's the third thing that we see in the story of the flood. It's the second response of God that we see coming through in the story. 
that in the face of the gravity and the, the rampant nature of human sin and the incredible catastrophic expression of divine judgment, we see the beacon of God's grace shining like a lighthouse on a stormy night. Even as the flood acts as a foreshadowing of the judgment that's going to come, so the grace of God in saving Noah foreshadows the saving grace that we experience today in Jesus. And it tempers, it tempers the fullness of God's wrath that forever binds together His justice and His grace in a way that hasn't changed over the millennia since He acted. And I want us to see a couple of those moments in the story of the flood as well. The story of the flood is not just a story of judgment, but it's also the story of God's grace. You remember where we read earlier Genesis chapter 6 verse 7 where God said, I'm going to blot out man and, and all the animals and the birds and the, and the bugs. He follows that in verse 18. He says, but Noah found favor in the eyes of the Lord. This is the account of Noah and his family. You see, Noah was a righteous man. He was the only blameless person living on earth at the time. And he walked in close fellowship with God. Noah was the father of three sons, Shem, Ham, and Jephthah. Later on in verse 17, it says, Look, I'm about to cover the earth with a flood that will destroy everything. Everything on the earth will die. But Noah, I will confirm my covenant with you. So enter the boat, you and your wife, and your sons and their wives, and bring with you a pair of every kind of animal, male and female, into the boat with you to keep them alive during the flood. And when everything was ready, the Lord said to Noah, Go into the boats with all of your family, for among all the people of the earth, I can see that you alone are righteous. One of the things you'll notice as we read this, these texts together, if you, if you look carefully, you'll notice that, that Noah is singled out amongst all the people of the world. He is singled out as the one who is righteous. Nothing is actually mentioned about the spiritual state of his wife. I mean, we can hope that she was reasonably righteous as well, but we don't know. Nothing is mentioned about his sons and, and even the wives that they had. In fact, the implication of the verses as we read them at face value seems to be that Noah is in a category of his own, that there is no one like him, that he alone is righteous, much like Enoch was before him and Job was after him. And if we were to presume a little bit further, we might presume that if there was going to be anyone on earth who deserved salvation, it was going to be Noah, because he's the righteous one. But you, I want you to notice when God brings salvation to Noah, he doesn't just say, hey, Noah, you get on the ark. Make a nice little boat, right? Just, you don't have to take a long time. It's, just, it's small, just two oars. You can, you'll be safe. But he makes a large boat. And Noah and his wife and Noah's three sons and their three wives get in the boat. And one pair of all of the animals in the earth all get into the boat. In essence, the future of both humanity and all of animals, all animal kind, all the animal kingdom is saved because of Noah. See, in, in, in this way, you see the saving grace of God on display. Just as Jesus came, and Jesus was one man amongst many who alone was righteous, so in Noah we have the story of one man who amongst many alone is the one who is righteous. And just as through Jesus, the one righteous man, salvation came to many, so in Noah, the one righteous man, salvation comes to many, to the future of humankind, to his immediate family and to all the animals. And right in the midst of God's judgment is the shining light of his grace. 
But then if you want to, you really want to ramp that picture of God's grace up a little bit, you go to chapter 9. See, chapter 9 is the end of the story of the flood. It's the aftermath. And it, the waters have receded. The ark has landed on dry ground. The gangway has been laid out and everyone's disembarked, right? And they're on the new earth that they now get to live on. And in this moment, God appears and He comes and He speaks to not just Noah, but Noah and his whole family. And this is in this moment where God covenants with Noah, and we're going to read it again in a moment. Right? He covenants with Noah to never again allow his justice to be manifested in reality like he has done in this flood. And for me, what makes this covenant so striking is that it is totally unwarranted and it is unsolicited. We have absolutely no right to expect God to do this. God has every right to exercise His justice and His judgment over the sinfulness of humanity. And He could have done that over and over again throughout history. But in His grace, He chooses to limit His own justice in deference to His grace. To show us the incredible kindness of His nature. For me, that paints an incredibly beautiful picture of the God we serve. The final thing that, that we'll look at tonight, the final response that, that I see coming out of God in the story of the flood is the picture of the faithfulness of God. And I think we see the faithfulness of God in, in two really key ways. The first way, I think we see God's faithfulness to His own character. right? Because I think we would love God to say, you know what, like surely you could have just made a way, surely you could have just not, like looked over some of the sin, but God has to be faithful to himself. He, he cannot be false to himself. He mu so even in his judgment, we see his faithfulness on display. God is unable to ignore sin. Sin has to be dealt with. That's why who Jesus was and how he came is so significant. It wasn't that God just said, you know what, guys, sin, I'm, like, I'm just going to write off the debt. It's going to be okay. But sin was, the punishment for it was exercised on Jesus. The price was paid. The penalty was exacted. And Jesus stood as a substitute for us, as an atoning, propitiatory, wrath-bearing sacrifice that took away the punishment that we deserved. But I think as you read the story, you'll see this word repeated three times in the story. It's the word remembered. And in that word is a picture of God's faithfulness. In Genesis chapter 8, verse 1, the flood waters have filled up the earth. It's been raining for 150 days. And the whole earth is covered. And then it says, But God remembered Noah and all the wild animals and the livestock who were with him in the boat. And he sent a wind to blow across the earth. And the flood waters began to recede. And the underground waters stopped flowing. And the torrential rains from the sky were stopped. And so the flood waters gradually receded from the earth. And eventually all the waters recede. And the birds are sent out. And eventually Noah and his family disembark. And then in Genesis chapter 9 and verse 12, we see, the, we see this moment. Then God said... I'm going to give you a sign of the covenants that I'm making with you and with all living creatures for all generations to come. And I've placed my rainbow in the clouds, and it is a sign of the covenant that I'm making with you and with all the earth. So when I send the clouds over the earth, the rainbow will appear in the clouds, and I will remember my covenant with you and with all living creatures. 
Never again will floodwaters destroy all life. For when I see the rainbow in the clouds, I will remember the eternal covenant between God and every living creature on earth. These verses are beautiful because when they speak of God's remembering, when we read about God's remembering in Scripture, it's not that God forgot, but it's, it's this word that pulls together the idea of God's faithful love and His timely intervention. God's remembering always implies His movement towards the object of His memory. This is illustrated so wonderfully in Exodus chapter 2. We find the Israelites in captivity in Egypt. They've been there. They've been there for 400 years, and they've begun to be enslaved. Joseph has been forgotten. A new Pharaoh has arisen. His family has become a nation, and the nation is in slavery. And it says this in in Exodus chapter 2 from 23 to 25. Years passed, and the king of Egypt died. But the Israelites continued to groan under their burden of slavery. And they cried out for help, and their cry rose up to God. And God heard their groaning, and He remembered His covenant promise to Abraham, to Isaac, and Jacob. And He looked down on the people of Israel, and He knew that it was time to act. When God remembers, it's His acknowledgement that it's time to step forward and to act, to come and to show His loving faithfulness for us. And the story of the flood shows us God's faithfulness to His creation. See, God places a rainbow in the sky, and we look at the rainbow, and we remember, if we, if we remember the story, we remember what it means and what it stands for. But God says that He puts the rainbow in the sky so that when He looks down from heaven onto the earth, and He sees all of the earth, at any given time on the earth, there are clouds, and it is raining somewhere, and there's a rainbow. And God looks down, and day in and day out, and moment in and moment out, He looks down and He sees the rainbow, and it's a reminder to Him that He has chosen to be gracious, and He remains faithful. Isn't that beautiful? When we look up, when we see a rainbow, we can remind ourselves that it is God's promise of His faithfulness that He has shown us. And never since that day has there been a flood like the flood of Genesis. Never since that day has God chosen to exercise His judgment against the sinfulness of humanity in a holistic way. It's because He is faithful to His promises. Paul writes to Timothy, and he says, Timothy, you need to know that even though sometimes we are faithless, God remains faithful because He cannot deny Himself. The story of the flood shows us a picture of the faithfulness of God. What a blessing for us. All right. What does it mean for us to live in light of the flood? What does it mean for us as those who live under a new covenant, under the authority of Jesus? I think there are three things that we can carry forward into our lives from the story that we find right at the beginning of God's Word. The first is this. I think the flood has to affect the way we think about and deal with sin in our lives. In the picture, in the story of the flood, we see an unfiltered response from God to sin. Every other story since then, you see God's response filtered through His grace and filtered through His restraint and filtered through His mercy. But in the picture and the story that we find in the flood, you see an unfiltered picture of how God responds to sin. And it is righteous and it is just. 
We see the pain that sin causes our father, that he was, had to look down on that which he had made and which he had expressed in his mind and given birth to by his words and breathed life into with his breath. We see the pain it caused him where sin took that thing and corrupted it and broke it and turned it away from what it was meant to be. We see the severity with which our father regards sin. And we see that the right and righteous response to sin is justice. And because we live now in an era of deferred judgment, where judgment is held over, I think it should cause us to, we need to be careful that it doesn't make us take sin lightly. We need to make sure that we still take sin seriously. We need to take seriously those, those calls in Scripture that tell us to flee temptation, to put off our old self, to, to crucify again our flesh, and to put our sinful nature to death. We need to take seriously the call to ask God to search us and to know us and to reveal any way in us that is unrighteous and ungodly. We need to take seriously the call to confess our sins to one another. And we need to take seriously the promise of God that when we do that, we receive forgiveness, not judgments. God tells us that if you confess your sins and repent of your sins, He is faithful and just to forgive you of your sin, and to cleanse you from all of your unrighteousness. Isn't that beautiful? That's the promise of God. But let's not allow ourselves to cultivate sin in our life because we think it doesn't matter. Secondly, the flood should help us to comprehend the greatness of our God's grace. That even in the midst of such great judgment, He made provision for salvation, and He made provision for a new creation. There's a picture in the flood of baptism. See, the flood comes, and it destroys the old, and after it recedes, what is left is new, and there's a new earth that starts after the flood. Baptism is a similar picture for us. Your old sinful human self goes down into the water, and it dies in the water. It identifies with Jesus in His death, and you rise, and it's a new you. You're a new creation in Christ. It's a picture of baptism in the flood. Today we get to live in the fulfillment of that which was just a shadow in Noah's day. The flood was a picture of what would come, of the saving grace that would come in Christ. And we get to live in that. And we get to rejoice in that. Friends, let's not take it lightly. Let's rejoice in the incredible grace of God. Let's not take it for granted. And finally, the flood reminds us of the faithfulness of God. And we get to live now in the security that our God is faithful. That He is a God who doesn't change. He is the same yesterday, today, and forever. The flood reminds us that no matter what, God is faithful. The flood reminds us that even still today, His promises are true. And if God has said it, friends, you can believe it. Paul wrote, and he tells us that all of the promises of God are yes and amen in Christ. God's word will never be broken. If God has said it, you can believe it. And you can live by it and you can trust him for it because he is a faithful God. And I want to encourage you this evening, no matter what you might be going through, and some of you might be going through some very, very difficult times, remember that God is faithful. Remember that God will not let you down. Remember that even if you can't comprehend what it means to be faithful, completely and wholly faithful, God is always faithful because he can't deny himself. It's just who he is. He has to be faithful. That's the God we serve. 
That's the way I think the flood should impact us. And as we read that story and remember that story that many of us heard for the first time in Sunday school, let's remember the picture of the God that it gives us. Because we get to live in light of that today. Sure, will you guys and the team come up? And we're gonna we're gonna go into a space of worship, but it's also a space of responding to God. And I want to encourage you to respond in whatever way is going to be appropriate for you this evening. There might be some of you, and as we've been here tonight, you felt the Spirit of God just call out some stuff in you that you know is offensive to God. That you know actually you've needed to deal with for a while, but you haven't because you thought it would just be okay. And I want to encourage you, don't leave it there. Go and confess your sin to someone. Go and tell someone, you know what? I've been doing this. I've been entertaining this in my life. Because when you bring it into the light, the power of sin is broken and you get to experience the freedom that Jesus died to give you. It doesn't have to be me or John in the front. It can be someone sitting next to you. And then receive the forgiveness of God that always comes after we repent of our sin. Turn away from it. Ask God to forgive you and feel the love and the grace of Christ minister to you. Maybe that's not what God's been saying to you. Let's remember and celebrate His grace tonight. Let's not take for granted this thing that, that we say, you know, have you been saved? It's like such a simple thing. That is the most wonderful thing. Do you know Scripture tells us that when one person turns towards God and repents of their sin and confesses Jesus as their Savior, the whole of the heavenly host rejoices. Thousands and thousands of angels rejoice because of the grace of God being accepted by another one of His creation. Let's celebrate the goodness of His grace. Maybe you're in a really tough space, and you need to remember the faithfulness of God. Take some time. You don't need to stand and sing with us. You can press into God in prayer. You can search His faith. You can call out to Him and ask Him to come through. You can come and ask someone to pray with you and to trust that God will be there for you in whatever space you're in. We're here to do that with you because we're brothers and sisters in the Lord, and God is faithful. So let's follow him as he leads us tonight. I'm going to close for us in prayer, and we're going to hand over to Stu and the team. Lord, in the story of the flood, we're reminded of the depravity that we can sometimes fall to. We see so clearly the incredible justice of God worked out. And we thank you, God, that it has worked out with grace and it has worked out with faithfulness and that we get to live now in light of you, Jesus, who came in truth and in love. God, you are fully and perfectly the best representation of the fullness of God. You are perfectly just and you are perfectly gracious. And we get to experience the fullness of that incredible grace, Jesus, and we bless you for that. We thank you, God, that wherever we go, you go with us. That even if we walk into the valley of the shadow of death, we don't fear evil because you go with us. And even in the midst of our enemies, you prepare a table for us. And your goodness and your mercy follow us all the days of our lives. Thank you, God. Thank you, Lord. Lord, we want to just honor you tonight. We want to give you great glory. We want to praise your holy name because of who you are. Because you are worthy of our praise. And we want to say thank you, Lord, for all that you have done for us. In your wonderful name, Jesus, we pray.
Amen.